Welcome in to this edition of Broadcaster Hour. It is noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, and we are glad you're with us for the next hour. This is Roger Hoover coming to you live from the Greenville, South Carolina offices of Broadcaster Hour. On the other side of the screen, we've got Kyle Crooks in Gainesville, Florida, and at an undisclosed location in New Jersey in the center of the screen, we have Ian Eagle of CBS Sports, Turner, Westwood One Radio, and the Brooklyn Nets on Yes. Ian, welcome to Broadcaster Hour. Thank you for joining us today. Is this witness protection? We, we do not give away my location in the Garden State. <laughs> well, we're just certainly glad you could uh, carve out the time for us. And I know you've been doing a lot of interviews just like this. And I've seen this background that you have so many times, not only for some of your interviews, but even your son's Noah interviews. Just anything you can tell us about some of the uh, artifacts you have on display there on the shelves? Yes, th this was carefully crafted after seeing so many Zoom backgrounds over the last two months. I tried to go minimalist. This is not my office. Uh, this is my wife's area, her office, but we've, we've taken over a little portion of the house and made this the studio setup. There's uh, a bobblehead back there. That's, that's a bobblehead of me and my son Noah that a fan sent us. Wow. So that gives you a pretty good indication of how passionate people are out there. And, and it's to scale as well. He's a little bit taller <laughs> than I am on the bobblehead and in real life. Uh, basketball behind me was given to me after uh, my 25th year with the Brooklyn Nets and the Nets organization. And they presented me with that last year and a watch that I'm also wearing. Wow. Why? I don't know. I, I don't really need to know what time it is at this point, but... I just put the watch on because I knew we were doing something special. I also put on cologne because I wanted to smell good for your podcast. Yeah, a lot of Zooms. You're right, Roger. I'm, I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, to win a, a Zoom Emmy in 2021, a Zemi. It's going to be... It's going to be big. Well, another thing you'll certainly uh, put on the shelf to display for all of your upcoming calls. <laughs> yeah. uh, we always like to start these conversations by just talking about what was the spark? How did the play-by-play -play bug and sportscasting bug uh, hit you? What age were you when you started to have an interest? And then what were some of your first steps? Yeah, I was eight years old. And I knew fairly definitively that I was interested in this field. I was curious about not just sports in general, but how they were covered and the media portion of it. Baseball games in particular, grew up a Met fan in Queens, New York, and was very interested in the Bob Murphy, Ralph Kiner, Lindsey Nelson troika. Uh, they would shift between radio and TV and split their duties. So I'd watch a game, and then I tune in on the radio as well, just out of curiosity to see who was doing what and when. And then that spilled over into basketball and football and hockey. And Marv Albert was doing everything in New York City into uh, the late 70s, early 80s, my formative years. And I was so impressed by his versatility and the fact that he could go from sport to sport to sport, could then anchor the local news on WNBC that night, pop up on a boxing match over the weekend or a football game. And I just thought to myself, that seemed like such a interesting life. And I think anyone that grew up in New York during that time period was doing an impression of Marv, whether they knew it or not. You know, my mom or dad would come down and, and in the morning and say, do you want uh, eggs and bacon? And yes, that, that would be my answer. And they wanted me to seek psychiatric help at that point. They thought something might be wrong. But uh, I told them about my passion. I told them about my interest at a young age. And fortunately, they were all for it. They told me quite simply, well, then that's what you'll do. And when you get that kind of encouragement, there's a belief that's planted inside you. And uh, there's an empowerment to that even though you know nothing about it, you actually start to believe that this is what you would do. And that's what uh, that's what sparked it. And I carried it into my college years at Syracuse and then professionally beyond that. But uh, that early time in my life, I, I remember very vividly 
and uh, the fact that my parents were uh, very much 100% into it uh, certainly gave me a runway to to try to do it. Fine. When's the first time you're getting on the air? Is it not until WAER at Syracuse? And what are those early years like, essentially, trying to figure out how to do it live? Do you consider my shower growing up as being on the air? We all that, did that, yeah. Yeah, that was that was the first time. There's a lot going on in there, and uh, I, <laughs> I covered it well. Uh, yeah, I think like a lot of kids, I was talking into a hairbrush, watching TV, calling games. You know, I had two sisters from my father's first marriage, but I never lived with them. So for the most part... I was an only child and I was there to entertain myself and baseball cards were a huge deal. And I was a collector, 1977, 78, 79, 80, 81, that stretch of time in particular, I was spending money, whatever money I had on baseball cards and the bad gum that came in them that was usually cracked, but tasted really good for a total of five seconds. You'd get a burst of flavor from that tops gum and then done nothing you it was like chewing plastic from that point on Uh, i would call games on on my bed literally just putting cards in order and rusty staub who was with the mets at the time i just remember him in particular being at the the center of it no i didn't do anything about it until i got to college and i actually started at z89 in syracuse i went to meet with uh WJPZ, Z89, and WAER, first week of college, freshman year. And WAER, it seemed very daunting. They talked about having to be at the studio at 5.45 in the morning to write outcasts before you would even get cleared to make tapes. They would have to check your writing first, 5.45 in the morning, and then there would be a screening process from there to see if you would move on to the next level. WJPZ, I went in for that meeting. They handed me a piece of copy. They told me to read it out loud. I did. They said, wow, you're pretty good. We'll put you on the air on Wednesday. I was like, well, that sounds great. So (laughs) I ended up doing that. And my entire freshman year was spent there. Sophomore year, a couple of people from WAR contacted me and said, hey, look, we know you have some talent. You really should come over here because we've got the men's basketball games, football games, lacrosse games. And I said, well, do I still have to show up at 545? They said, yeah, everybody does. I was a little more mature at that point. Maybe I'd gotten some of the partying out of the way as well. And I decided to to make the jump. And it was the right decision. And that was it. That was the first time that I actually put the performance part into the broadcasting mindset. I had done it over and over in my head. I had done it in my bedroom growing up or in my bathroom, but it was really the first time that I got on microphone and felt that rush of the red light going on and going out and and doing your thing. And you're a New York area guy and you've never had to leave. You you get hired by FAN as a producer, not on an on-air role. But first, I want to ask you, what is that climate like at FAN in in the early 90s? You have Mike and the Mad Dog, you have Don Imus, you have have so many people who have gone on to do great things uh, that were at that station at that point. Uh, What what is that climate like at that time in, in a budding genre that is sports talk radio? Exciting. Uh, Every day was exciting. At that point, it was so new. And I think there was a feeling, maybe a little bit of self-awareness, certainly reflecting back on it, that we were making some form of history every day because the canvas was blank. Station started in 1987. So at that point, I was a sophomore in college. I got an internship there between my junior and senior year of college in the summer. So, look, before any of this was available to us, you didn't even have a visual of what these people looked like for the most part. Don Imus did TV commercials, so you knew what he looked like. But the other on-air talent, I didn't even know what Steve Summers looked like. He was the overnight Mm -hmm. guy. And I turned. it obviously turned out that 
in the internship, I got to go behind the scenes and I realized, oh, he looks like Weird Al Yankovic. Wow, I, I didn't anticipate that at all. And, and for me, it was so instrumental. When I showed up for my senior year of college at Syracuse, I felt like I had a leg up on everybody else. Nothing that I voiced, nothing that I talked about, nothing that I shared with everyone. It was just an inner confidence that I had seen at the highest level how a sports radio station operates, how the update anchors prepare for their cast, how the talk show hosts weave in the information that's given to them, how much is off the top of their head, how much is talked about ahead of time, how much is in the heat of the moment. Uh, so the, the three days a week internship, one day was in the control room, and that was the overnight show with Steve Summers. Another day was in the newsroom, middle of the day, middle of the week. So you saw the hustle and bustle. And then another day was a weekend where there was not a lot going on and how that shifted and the difference between the vibe in the radio station during the week and then on the weekend and where you had a lot more quiet time. And for me, I used that time constructively reading through every media guide that was produced by every team in the four major sports and not just for the players' bios and the stats and the nuggets of information. I wanted to learn about the broadcasters. And that was the only tool that I had pre-internet to learn about the play-by-play -play guy for any of the major sports teams. That was invaluable information, their path, what school they went to, what jobs they had. And I'm not saying that I just read it once. I memorized it. I wanted to know if I wanted to be in this business, I felt it was important to familiarize myself with everybody else that was in this business. And I remember when I got the net job in 1994, media guide was out, got to see the media guide before I even showed up for the first day of work. And I memorized everyone's name and their picture because I wanted to be prepared when I walked in there and I'm walking down the hall and a gentleman was walking towards me. His name was Mitch Hall. And he said, Hey, I, and I go, Hey, Mitch. He goes, well, you know my name? I said, yeah. I know your name. I thought that was important. And to this day, I still believe that's important, that human contact. So uh, the, the climate there at that time was like a roller coaster ride. And the fact that I was there in a production role allowed me by osmosis to learn so much. It was like graduate school, really. Uh, they paid me, not a lot, but they paid me to go to graduate school. And in May of 1990, when I started to getting a chance on the air in September of 1991, uh, I still look at that period as completely instrumental in what I eventually did. Even though it had nothing to do with what my broadcast life became, it planted so many seeds in how I viewed the business and understanding how it all worked. And then from there, Ryan, how did you transition into the Nets play-by-play -play role? What can you tell us about that process? And then what do you love about broadcasting basketball specifically on the radio? Yeah, so uh, September of 1991, I got a chance to do updates and that story, I'll tell a very quick version of it, but uh, I knew that I had interest in being on the air. They told me when I took the job as a producer from seven to midnight, if you want to be on the air, do not take this job. They said it flat out. And I had to nod my head in agreement and understand that's how they were viewing it. And I said, no problem. I get it. Obviously, the entire time I... I still had a very strong feeling that I would get in my my uh, comfort zone there, get my foot in the door, and I'd convince them eventually that I could be on the air. So while I didn't beat the drum every day reminding them that I wanted to be on the air, they knew, they understood. And I think because they got to know me and they got to see that I was trustworthy and hopefully believed that I was sharp and I knew what I was talking about and I knew my sports, 
that maybe they would give me a chance. And a random September Friday, I show up for work, would get there at four o'clock Eastern, shift was four to midnight, on air, seven to midnight, I was in charge of whatever was going on the air at that point, whether it was a game, whether it was a talk show, whether it was the pregame show for the Mets. And Stan Martin was the sports director at the time. Stan was a, a wonderful man, came from an acting background, Shakespeare, and made the transition into radio when he realized he wasn't going to make it as an actor. Had a great voice, booming voice. Uh, gravelly sound and uh, just old school all the way. But he was very uh, demonstrative in his demeanor and his movements and his reactions. So the way the newsroom was set up, uh, it was a bullpen, which I'm sure uh, many people can relate to. And it had eight desks set up alongside four and four separated by a rather thin partition. And Stan was at the far side of the newsroom. I was adjacent on the other side, left. And he's on the phone, and all you're hearing is his reaction to whatever call it was. Hello? What? No. Really? No. What? No. And he hangs up the phone. Nobody knows what's going on. He was in charge of making the update schedule. So he turns to me and he says, Ian, you want to be on the air, don't you? Yeah, I want to be on the air. This is 4.30 on a Friday. He said, well, go to the back and, and make a tape right now, a two-minute update. Okay. I said, uh, right now? He goes, right now, man, do it. So I grabbed some carts. I had been doing this in my spare time. Again, nobody told me, go make updates all the time. I just wanted to try to stay in that mental framework. He said, one take, bring it back. I write up an update. I grab some sound. I make a tape. I come back. I hand it to him. He leaves. He has an office in the back. He's gone for about 15 minutes. I have no idea. I asked him at what point. I said, uh, well, what's going on today? He goes, don't worry, man. That's it. And I'm preparing for the show. He comes back and he says, uh, you're on the schedule Sunday. Update anchor is sick and we need you doing updates NFL Sunday. Can you do it? I'm like, yeah, I can do it. And that was it. <laughs> that's, that's how it started. I did not wake up that day knowing that this is going to be the day that changes my life or changes my career. It was a very common humdrum Friday, and everything changed. I did well, and they asked me to do it again, 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 again. Started doing talk shows. First talk show I did was Super Bowl, which was 1992, so the 91 season. It was Washington and Buffalo. Steve Levy from ESPN and I co-hosted a five-hour pregame leading up to that game. So that was the first talk show I did. That went well. They then asked me to do weekend overnights from midnight to 6 a.m. as a talk show host from that point on. So I was working for Mike and the Mad Dog Monday through Friday, and I was doing talk shows Friday night, midnight to 6 a.m., Saturday night, midnight to 6 a.m. So I was working seven days a week, and I was loving it. <laughs> I, was, I was in my element. The next job popped up. 1994, I had gotten the Jets pre- and post-game job. The Jets came over to WFAN Radio in 1993. I was given that job. That was a huge deal at the time. Uh, FAN spent a lot of money to do this contract with the Jets, and it showed a great deal of trust in me to take over this role, and it gave me something that was really my own. And I saw a note in the paper. Phil Mushnick, media columnist in New York, had a note that Howard David the voice of the Nets was not going to be returning for the 1994-95 season. The crazy part about that is two weeks prior to that, I had had this weird dream, and I had told my wife about it, that I was doing a net game at the Meadowlands and that my father was in the stands. And my father did not go to many games. I could count on one hand 
how many games he went to in his life as a fan. He was a sports fan, but that part, he didn't love crowds and he didn't love the weight and he, he just didn't love the experience. And he was in the, the stands for this game in my dream. And I told her about it and she said, well, that, that's interesting. I was like, yeah, I have no idea what that means. So this thing pops up in the New York Post. And I said to myself, I've got to look into this. I've got to. And I reached out to two people at that point, uh, Russ Salzberg, who was a talk show host at WFAN and was the anchor at Channel 9 in New York, New Jersey, and covered a lot of Nets games. And I asked him his opinion on this. And I reached out to uh, Don Sperling, who I knew from the NBA, NBA Entertainment. I had done a couple of voiceovers for them. And my wife had worked at the NBA with Inside Stuff. Ahmad Rashad, Willow Bay, she was the fashion coordinator on that show. And that was it. I made two calls. I said, is there anything you know about this? They both said, hey, give me, give me a day. I'll call you back. They called me back. They both gave me the same name to contact, Amy Shear, director of broadcasting. I called her. She said, uh, do you have a tape? I said, I do. She said, well, if you can get me the tape today, I'll have my boss listen. She said, look, we're really deep in this process. It just popped up in the newspaper, but the reality is we knew about this for a, a long stretch. But that's all I can promise you. I can get my boss to listen. I said, you got it. Give me the address. This is you know, pre-GPS, pre-MapQuest. I know nothing about the state of New Jersey. I grew up in Queens. I was living in Manhattan. I knew something about jug handles that you had to get right to get left. It made no sense to me. It was completely irrational. So I drive out. I'm lost beyond belief. I'm trying to find this place. It's in uh, Rutherford, New Jersey, East Rutherford. I eventually do. It's a nondescript office. You wouldn't assume this is the Nets office. It looked like uh, it could have been any random office building. I go in. I ask for Amy Shear. They call her down. She comes down a stairwell. I say hello, introduce myself. We chat for 10 minutes, hand her the tape. She said, all right, I'll give it a listen. I'll pass it along to my boss. I'll let you know. And that was it. I got a call back the next day saying my boss... Jim Lamparello really liked it. This was all stuff from Syracuse. I had done no play-by-play -play from senior year to now this is 1994. So that was 1990. That's four years old. I picked a Seton Hall Syracuse game from the Meadowlands. I just thought, all right, maybe there's some symmetry there. And it happened to be a Seton Hall player, Ollie Taylor, who won the game at the buzzer. And I put that call on there. And I got a call. She said he liked it. He wants to hear more. Do you have more? More recent? I don't have anything. <laughs> I have nothing. Uh-oh. Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I have something more recent. Absolutely. I said, when do you need it? She said, well, you know, today, tomorrow. You got it. You got it. I'll get that for you. I have nothing. That's it. Had another uh, couple of buddies at NBA Entertainment, Rich Koppelnik and Steve Herbst. I called them. I said, look, is there any way I can get into your studio and record something off of a monitor, a Nick Net playoff game they had just played in the playoffs? They said, yeah. Could you mix in crowd noise? Yeah. Yeah, we could do that. So I go back out to New Jersey, this time beautiful Secaucus. They put me in this little editing bay with a mic plugged into the machinery. And they put the net Nick game with no commentary on the screen. They pump in the audio from ambient noise. And I do a half. They convert it. I drive now to East Rutherford. I hand her that tape, and that was it. I get a call the next day. Our team president, John Spolstra, father of Eric Spolstra, would like to meet you. 
I said, great. I said, how many people are up for this job out of curiosity? She said, it's down to you and one other guy. I'm like, whoa, this has all happened within a four day period, four days from seeing the little note in the column to now this call that I'm going to go meet with John Spolstra. And uh, I met with him, we hit it off and I walked out of there. I, I really felt strongly that I was going to get the job. My wife and I had been married at that point for one year. One year anniversary, we flew to San Francisco for our summer vacation. No cell phones, nothing. I called into my machine, and there was a message on my machine from Amy Shear saying, hey, give me a call. And I called her from San Francisco. A bird had pooped on my pants that day. <laughs> a seagull had gotten me right in my right thigh. And I thought to myself, if this isn't good luck, then I don't know what is. And I called her and she told me that, that I got the job. And everything, obviously, in my career changed dramatically. I was going down a, a different path. And uh, this, this shifted gears significantly. That's certainly a great story, and you were able to do uh, some radio with the Nets and then transition to a television role. Uh, just in terms of how you approach uh, basketball on the radio, what do you love about calling basketball on the radio, and then maybe some thoughts on TV as well? Yeah, basketball on the radio, uh, the pace more than anything else, uh, the fact that you can really find a rhythm, and uh, because the way the game is played, there's so much there. Of course, you've got to track the ball. Of course, score, time remaining, situation, all of the nuts and bolts part of it. But then it's up to you and it's up to your imagination. The canvas is blank and it's your job to fill it. I just, I just found that the rhythm of basketball worked with my voice, with my thought process, with up and down nature and uh, the fact that you really can push it, pull it back. Uh, basketball on the radio is a play-by-play -play man's medium. If you have a good analyst, that's great. And you work in concert with one another, but it really is your baby. And that experience was uh, really important. Uh, and also, I mean, I have to be brutally honest 1994, the New Jersey Nets were not a huge draw. And I was able to go with trial and error a lot, make mistakes. And it was happening not in complete anonymity, but enough where I wasn't getting a lot of scrutiny. So the fact that I had not called a lot of play-by-play -play at that point, other than my college years, I needed the reps. They believed in me as a broadcaster. Uh, certainly there were people out there that were better at play-by-play -play than I was because I just didn't have the experience. But I told John Spolster I was a fast learner. I told him in that interview that I thought I was going to be really successful in this business. And that's a very bold thing to say. You don't know how someone's going to react in that situation. In my case, he was a guy that looked outside the box, and I sensed that early in our sit-down that he would see it as a good thing. Someone else who was a little bit more paint-by-numbers might not and might have seen it as being cocky, and he saw it as a positive. And I said to him, I think I'm going to do really well in this business, and every time I'm asked about how I got my first chance, you're going to be in that story because you gave me that chance. And I saw him perk up a little bit and he had a wry smile on his face and that's why I was confident when I walked out. Uh, I called my wife and and told her that I, I thought I was gonna get this job. So the basketball play-by-play -play part of it on radio, learning experience for me, I worked with Mike O'Corin, who was a former player with the Nets, was a star at North Carolina. And just because of what's happening now with The Last Dance, he was the player that hosted Michael Jordan when Jordan took his official visit 
to Chapel Hill. So that started a very long and uh, close relationship between him and MJ. And getting this job meant that I got to actually hang around with MJ at times as well. So uh, that partnership was really good. I get the TV job the next year. I had no TV experience whatsoever, none. And again, it was somebody believing in me. Pete Silverman, who was the executive at the time at Sports Channel, made a change and elected to go with me, came down to me and two other broadcasters, well-known broadcasters at that, as the three finalists for the job. Ended up getting the job. And I had Bill Raftery next to me. And I realized very early, having gotten to know Bill the year before, was was the fact that I didn't have to do all that much. <laughs> you know, just just do your job and let Bill go. And as the years progressed, I realized, oh wait, I can I can go back and forth with him, and we can bring humor and we can bring a light-hearted tone to this. And the Nets were not very good at that point in time, so the entertainment factor had to be much higher. And I, I did enjoy the television part a lot because I realized it was a large collaborative process. And I always liked being part of a team. And I enjoyed that aspect of it. And TV is just that. Uh, you're not more important than anybody else on that crew. The audio person, the cameraman, uh, the TD, the AD, the producer, the director, the stat man, you name it. They're all important in order to put on this show. And that's what it felt like. TV feels a bit more like a show. Radio feels a bit more intimate. And I enjoy doing both. I'm, I'm lucky that I get to do both, but they are two very different ideals and uh, philosophies in how you do them. And you've got to really make a conscious effort to flip the switch when you're doing either. If you're doing too much radio on TV, it becomes very blatant and noticeable. If you're doing TV on radio and not doing your job describing, that also becomes very obvious. So you've really got to compartmentalize in your brain based on your assignment. And and television play-by-play -play in terms of cap doing actual play-by-play, -play, so captioning the picture on television yeah as opposed to laying out, as opposed to creating conversation. It's a delicate balance. And for me, I went from radio and I've done a lot more TV over the last few years. What was finding that balance like for you in the early years of captioning the picture and just essentially letting it breathe? Yeah, very challenging because I, I had an idea of how you do this job, but the benefit I had was I didn't do 10 years of radio. I did one. So I didn't have habits. I was still developing a style. I was still evolving as a broadcaster. So I went into that TV experience a little bit with a whole new outlook. I just thought, okay, let me immerse myself. Let me lean on Raf, who had been doing it forever, and his energy was something that you could feel and it was tangible. So even gauging that, I think that's often the biggest challenge if you have a bunch of young broadcasters that are tuning in, is finding that energy level. What works? What doesn't? How do I push it without it sounding contrived? And how do I keep it authentic? And that's really one thing I learned from Bill, who he is off the air is who he is on the air. It's maybe an exaggerated version of him. Of course, you know, he's not he's not going into restaurants and and say, I want the grilled chicken. It's just that would that wouldn't work. A waiter would would call the authorities. So we understand that he's going to pick and choose his spots. But I saw it firsthand. And I think it taught me a lot, you know, not in the execution of play-by-play, -play, but more along the lines of the, the tone that you bring and the fact that you bring it every game. That was a thing that really amazed me about Bill. That was in his heyday of ESPN at the time, Sports Channel, 
and CBS. He was doing all three, and he was doing a lot of games, and he was traveling a great deal. And there were games that he would show up for the Nets, and he didn't know what city he was in, uh, literally. <laughs> there were a couple times, like right before the game, we, we, we're in Charlotte, right? Yeah, yeah, we're in Charlotte. So uh, I, I just realized with him, he brought it every game. And that was ingrained into my head that every game, no matter what, it's a Tuesday night, it's the Nets and the Sacramento Kings, or it's a Sunday and it's the Steelers and the Ravens, or it's a Saturday afternoon and it's Kentucky, Florida, or Alabama, Florida. You got to bring it every single game. And I think with TV, uh, that's been maybe the biggest key of all. Putting a period on things, sometimes putting an exclamation point on things, but knowing that you have to harness your energy and when it matters, you got to bring it. You got to bring your fastball. And that's true all the time. That's uh, to this day, 26 years later, after getting the net job, that's, that's the mentality that I have for every single broadcast. And it doesn't matter what form, doesn't matter what level, radio, TV, network, local, that's, that's how I attack this thing. And it, and it kind of brings me to my next question. For you, what is the key to punctuating big moments on television? And I've heard people say that, well, anybody can do highlights. I, I don't think so. I think there's a, a specific skill set to making a highlight sound good. Yeah. The, the right amount of energy, the right uh, pitch of your voice. Uh, for you, what, what, is a key for, what is the key for making a moment resonate? You know, something uh, struck me pretty early in my NBA tenure, so probably late 90s, early 2000s, if I was preparing for an opponent, I would go back and try to catch a little bit of a game that they had played, but sometimes I didn't have the time to do that. And this is true NFL and NBA. And I saw that there were websites that would produce two-minute recaps of previous games. And I found myself watching a lot of those. A, sometimes just to put names to faces and body types, and other times just to see the guys out there doing their thing. And I would listen back to these highlights, and this is certainly not a criticism on any broadcaster in particular, but what I found was play-by-play -play announcers were getting caught up in the middle of a story, or they weren't actually doing what they were supposed to do on a big highlight. They were off on something else. And I thought to myself, all right, well, if you do this for a net game or for one of my CBS games, I want to make sure that you can get an idea of what's happening in this game in this two-minute highlight package. So it may have shifted my brain a little bit at that point of being a bit more on guard with highlights and making sure that I do them justice and every touchdown call is a highlight. I feel very confident that if you went on the internet and found my touchdown calls from 2019 and 2018 and 2017 and 2016, and there are sites that will compile them, that you're going to hear me and the essence of me come through in all of those touchdown calls. Yeah, of course, every now and again, something else is happening and you've got to jump on it late or maybe you didn't know exactly in the moment how it went down. But there's going to be a consistency in what I do. And that's a big key in this consistency. Look, I'm not a robot. I'm not a machine. Uh, I I don't look at the job that way, but I do look at the job as you've got to be able to do what you do every single time you do it. You can't be good on a Tuesday, bad on a Thursday, okay on a Saturday, awesome on a Sunday. You've got to have that same level throughout. 
And it just struck me back in those early years that I don't want to be the guy when you put that two minute highlight reel on that you have no idea what's happening. And I'm off on 17 different tangents. Now, look, stories are really important in a game, but choosing the right spot for them. Stats are very important. Graphics can be very important, but they have to be used judiciously. And you can't just jam them in because it's staring at you on your board. You've got to use them when they are germane to what it is you're discussing. And you have to be okay with the idea that it doesn't get in, that you did this work during the week and all this preparation, hours upon hours. We all know that. We get that. That's a a fundamental part of what we do. I'm not going to go on and on about the preparation because I think we know. Now, everybody does it differently, but we know how important that is. But it's only important if you use it correctly. It's not very important if you're just randomly tossing things out there, hoping that something sticks. And I think it was just a, a different approach that I've now c- carried with me for the last 20 plus years of how to do this and to make sure I was doing my job the right way every single time I do it. I and you and I like doing television play-by-play for really the same reason. It's a team effort. And with that, what's the best way for a play-by-play announcer to be a good teammate, not just with your color analyst? I think everyone kind of looks at that relationship, talks about the chemistry there. But what about with the producer and with the director, making sure everybody's kind of in the same boat? Well, Roger, first and foremost, you need to know what they do. You need to have an understanding of what their job is. You have to be curious about what they do. And you have to ask them questions about what they do and how they do it. So, look, I bounce around from city to city, from game to game, from assignment to assignment. And there's a lot that goes into a broadcast. But the human aspect is still very important, getting to know the people that you work with. Not just knowing their names, but knowing their backgrounds and knowing what makes them tick. And not assuming that uh, they have to adjust to you. You know, I look at myself as very flexible, unfortunately not physically anymore, I can't touch my toes, but malleable in the sense that you put me in a situation and I'm going to figure out a way to make the most of it. And trust me, even at the highest of levels, things are not always working perfectly. Your audio goes down or your monitor isn't working or your communication isn't working or that tape roll didn't go as quickly as you thought and what the producer told you was coming next didn't and something else did and you have to adjust on the fly getting angry getting ticked off hitting the talk back button and ripping into your production crew it solves nothing nothing Um, being a good person being a good teammate that that to me should be the default mode the part with your analyst is immense because you are judged as a team. You're judged as a pair or a threesome if you're working in in a three-person booth. And the day and age of people saying, I like him, I don't like him, she's okay. Mm, I I don't see it that way. I don't believe in that. They see you as a team. So, If you're going to get the most out of your team, that means you need to really know about that person next to you. And they don't have to be your best friend and they don't have to be someone that you vacation with and your families. But you do have to know them or at least try to get to know them. And you do have to figure out what makes them tick. Certainly in television, it's an analyst driven medium and. I've got to know, is that person that's sitting next to me comfortable with humor? Do they like the X's and O's? Do they like the human interest part? Do they like the strategy? What is it that they like and what are they good at? And how can I best spotlight their strengths? So I've looked at it as a, as a traffic cop in many ways. And maybe that's the best way for me to put it into context, 
there's a lot going on over there. There's a lot going on over there. There's a lot going on over here. The audience doesn't need to know about any of it. It's your job to synthesize it and to make sense of it in the moment and make sure that it's in a digestible form for the audience. And that's really the way that, that I look at the process of it with every game. You have to be in command. If you are not in command, there's going to be room for error and people can pick up on it. If you're tentative, if you are uneasy, if you're going down a road that you're not sure of, viewers can sense that. They know it. They can sense it. They can sense when someone's uncomfortable. They can sense when something's awkward. It's your job to get the team out of that and into a more comfortable place. And that's true from the moment you go on the air until the moment you go off the air. You've touched on preparation a little bit, and I believe you do one of the assignments that really test preparation more than anything, and that's the first round of the NCAA tournament, uh, getting the assignment on Selection Sunday to wherever yep. it's on Thursday or Friday. What can you tell us about the week leading up to that one frenzied day when you're going to get to call four games, you see eight teams, you're going to all these shoot-arounds. How do you compartmentalize and make sure you're ready to go for that day? Yeah, uh, every year I go through the same phenomenon which is about two weeks prior to the NCAA tournament commencing. I don't sleep well. I find my brain wandering a bit out of just the sheer mystery of who I'm going to get. There's no way to prepare for it. Uh, you can say, maybe someone from the outside says, well, you know, you just, you just watch college basketball all year. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. You can't possibly just watch college hoops and be ready for the NCAA tournament. The amount of information, the avalanche of information that comes at you in that first round is overwhelming. And part of the job is, yes, compartmentalizing and probably year five for me, I was able to put it in a way that I could understand. And I stopped looking at it as eight separate teams that I had to prepare for. And I started viewing it as four individual matchups. So when I put it in my brain as, okay, you have to prepare for four games and viewed it as matchups as opposed to eight teams, I started to see it differently. And I started literally to put together files. You know, it's <laughs> it's not very in-depth. You know, it's something you get from Staples and there are files that are colored, blue, black, red, orange, and a piece of tape over the file with the matchup. And then everything that I do for that matchup goes into that file. And when I'm done for that moment or that hour, that file goes away and I go into a second file, which has the second matchup. So when I was attacking it as eight teams, it felt like too much. When I broke it down into four games, it felt manageable somehow. Look, it's still very challenging. And when you show up for the day of practices, the day before the set of games, your mind is just a mess. Because they don't come in order to show up at practice. They go out of sequence so that the teams that are playing one another don't pass each other and don't cross over. So you, at the end of that game, everything that I've just, uh, that day, everything I just told you about, the matchups go out the way. You now start questioning who's playing whom, literally, <laughs> when you go to bed the night before. Uh, it's by far the most challenging thing that I do. If you want to do it well, it takes an insane level of concentration and organization. And every year I do it, I say to myself, I should really write myself a letter, seal it and open it the night before the first round. And all the letter would say is, dear Ian, it will all work out. Love Ian. That's it. That's how I should do it because it works out. But yeah. uh, the days leading up to it, it's it's like a fire drill. 
And and when you put together your charts, say for a football game, what exactly is on there? I mean, we all have our stats and numbers, and sometimes I throw up, I throw just too much information on on a chart, and it's sometimes it's it's counterintuitive. What what do you put on a chart? What do you need in front of you? Say, I in for an NFL game. Kyle, are are we? going to take the audio portion of this and just excuse the fact that someone is not going to be able to see this. Can I bring in a prop? Are you comfortable yes, with props? Yes, we allow so props. <laughs> yes. We could give some radio description on your chart if you'd like for the audio. <laughs> I, I thought you may ask. So again, trying to be a prepared individual. Uh, this was Kansas City against Houston, and this would be the, the Kansas City offense. Offensive line, wide receivers to the side, kicker, punter, quarterbacks, running backs, flip the chart, set up in a defensive alignment with the defensive front, the linebackers, and the secondary, and notes on each player, every player, there has to be something. It's just, for me, maybe a superstition that someone gets injured and I don't have anything. Obviously, you've got the height, you've got the weight, you've got age, you've got hometown, you've got how they were acquired, what school they went to, what year they're in, what team they previously played for. It's all color-coded, and this is all done by hand. Same version for the Houston Texans. I make the chart from scratch. From there, there'll be a secondary chart with just news and notes from that game. And that's going to be full by the end of the week. I start this process with just a piece of loose leaf paper, jotting down note after note after note. And then eventually by Sunday, it makes its way into a better form on a manila folder like this. Kansas City Chiefs, 4-1, 19-13 loss to Indianapolis on Sunday night. Was it an aberration? That's just a little note that I wrote next to it, just to remind myself. At the point that that game was played, they were undefeated. They lost to the Colts. They were held to 324 yards. They had 11 penalties for 125 yards. They haven't lost back-to-back home games since 2013. That was Andy Reid's first season. It's the 11th all-time meeting between these two teams. Chiefs have won four of the last five. They've scored four touchdowns in their last nine quarters. They had scored 12 touchdowns in their first 11 quarters. On and on. How much of this makes air? If you have a great game, not a lot. If the game goes south, the number goes up. Then I'll have another sheet. This is just from our production meetings with the teams. This is with Houston, with Bill O'Brien, with Deshaun Watson, with Will Fuller, and with J.J. Watt, and with Deshaun Gibson. Kansas City, same deal. With Andy Reid, with Patrick Mahomes, with Travis Kelsey. And that's it. It's it's a lot. It uh, It probably is more than I need but it's what I'm comfortable with and it helps get me ready for the game. How often am I going to this and referring to it in game? Not a lot. I find during the process, a lot of it is absorbed in my brain and that's why I can instinctually work it in when it's appropriate and not just searching for something on my board and saying something randomly because I feel like I need to fill the airtime. It's, It's supposed to be uh, a feel process. It's supposed to be in the flow of conversation. And the hope is this kind of preparation can produce that on the air. And before I ask uh, my last question, do you have a basketball chart handy? Or if not, just to describe what you like to have when you're calling a basketball game, whether it's a Nets game, national game, whatever it may be. Roger, I did not know you were going to ask me about the basketball chart. I should have been on top of that. And I should have brought a Florida chart for Kyle because I do have yeah. one. I had them. I saw the it. Year. I saw it in person. 
Yes. If you want to pause this, I can go get it, but I can just describe it. Sure. Uh, left side, point guard, two guard, small forward, power forward, center, also done by hand, number, name, college, high school, hometown, what year they're in, stats, of course, and then biographical information, and then beyond scouting. You know, to me, yeah, it's not my job necessarily to give you the scouting report, but I think it helps. I think it helps when when you can give a little bit of who that player is, what the coaches think of them, what opponents may think of them, what to look for as a viewer. On the right side, their respective backups and then open spots for other players, coach, complete bio, biographical information on him, previous schools, where he went to college, his hometown, his age. You just never know. You don't know when that's going to pop up. And again, I'm preparing much more than I need. From there, a separate index card with pertinent information that I was able to pull out during the week. Newspapers, websites that cover the team. You parachute in on these games. So you have to really get to a point where you have working knowledge of the teams. And you can't possibly say you're an expert. I haven't watched every game that Florida played. I watched their last game. Maybe the game before that. Two games worth. I haven't seen how their season has evolved, but I can do the research. And I don't pretend to know more than I know. I think that's the other thing, too. You have to be real with people. People sniff that out. If you start pretending to be an expert on something, that's where you can get exposed. This guy just came out of nowhere and he knows everything about the program. No, there's no way. It, it's not possible. But you can know what you need to know. And you can lean on your analyst for the basketball side of it. If I'm working with Raf, if I'm working with Jim Spinarkle, they've done a lot of research themselves. And that's where good questions or good talking points and topics can get the conversation going. You know, the other thing, lastly, with an analyst, just to make the point, it's not your job as a play-by-play -play announcer to interview the analyst. That's not what people want. They don't want you interviewing the analyst. Are there times where... You have to ask a question to get the ball rolling? Absolutely. But that's not the nature of the job. So it's really more about creating good conversation. All right, we're near the end of the hour, so I'll get you out on this, something that's a little fun and also practical. Uh, of course, for your job, you're traveling all the time, whether that's in yep. some private chartered flights with the Nets or commercial flights, other private um, flights you may have as well. What are some Iron Eagle travel do's and don'ts that you, you've picked up along the years, whether it's <laughs> you know anything with travel, hotels, the airplane rides, anything like that, that you can help the next generation of broadcasters when they're starting to get pretty travel? stressed. Yeah. I mean, look, barring what's happening currently in our country, if we're just taking it from all of my years of experience, four words, find a happy place. You do not want to bring that edge when you travel. You cannot allow little things to bother you. You know, our job can be stressful enough and getting places and making sure you're there and making sure you've got everything you need and things that are out of your control, cancellations, delays, uh, pack flights and someone that is not very conscientious sitting next to you and you can't do the, your work on the flight because to the right of you is someone that's made sure they're going to control that hand rest. This happens for all of us. I just decided somewhere along the line, I cannot let this be a stressor in my life. So I just don't allow anything to bother me. And if I do, I keep it to myself. Uh, you will never see me get into it with another person. It will not happen. There was a time where it did. I've gone probably 10 years without that happening. So that's my main, main piece of advice. Do not let it get to you. Do not let it become this 
300 pound gorilla in your life. You've got to maintain your poise in these situations. Breathe deeply if need be. Counting, I found that to be the case on TSA lines. I'll just start counting backwards from 100. And I will do as I need to do in order to get through that moment to get to my next moment. Uh, that's that's probably the best thing I can tell you. Well, that is really practical advice and exactly what we are looking for. Uh, we have had a blast over this past hour getting to hear your stories. And, of course, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. And I know this very special as well to Kyle, who grew up watching you and even attending your sports casting camp. So this has meant a great deal to us, I And thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Uh, truly, really uh, proud of Kyle and what he's done. Roger, I, I think you're excellent at what you do preparing for this. Uh, I just took some time to do some research myself. That's what you do. And both of you guys should be uh, really proud of where you are and what the future holds. So, uh, so, so glad you asked me to be a part of it. And we'll do it down the road. I, I actually bathed and shaved for this. So I just hope you understand <laughs> the commitment level that it required on my end to be a part of this. And cologne as well. Yeah. And I wanted well. to smell good for you. <laughs> I don't know why. Wow. That is certainly next level. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate it. All right, guys. All right, we'll be back next week with another episode of Broadcaster Hour. Thanks for watching, everyone.